Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Pickles and Vodka, the unfiltered mental health podcast dedicated to all the things that no one wants to talk about in real life. Um, actually, I've been thinking about that description, and I'm not sure if it's entirely accurate. Um, it's not that people don't want to talk about these topics in real life, it's that they're afraid to, or they don't feel like they can for whatever reason. Um, and I guess my main goal with this podcast is to open up a discussion about mental health in a way that's safe, that people feel like they don't have to filter themselves. And if we can just tell our stories and be honest about who we really are and what we're struggling with, I don't know, I think it's really important to open up a conversation about this. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) I'm Christina, your host. And before I get into this week's interview, I kind of wanted to talk about the concept of recovery, because I feel like with this podcast, I have presented recovery in a few different lights. I know in one of the early episodes, I stated that I was not pursuing recovery and that it's okay to not necessarily be in recovery. You can still be heard. Uh, You're still valid. And I know like some people don't take you seriously unless you're in recovery actively. And um, I don't want that to be the case. But also I don't want to paint recovery as a bad thing because obviously I want everyone to be as fulfilled as they possibly can and to realize their value and to be as happy as they can be. And that's also another topic that me and my guests talk about today is just the concept of happiness. I really hate the way society paints the picture of happiness, how um, everything has to be perfect and you have to act a certain way or feel a certain way. Um, Obviously, everyone's different. Everyone's picture of happiness is going to look a little bit different. So yeah, that's definitely something I wanted to talk about. But um, another thing that I've been realizing lately is that recovery is not linear. As you might know, I've been sober for a little over a month now. And in the past, when I pictured myself getting sober, I imagined my all my problems to go away. I imagined that everything would be easier. But the fact is, it's not. I'm still depressed. I'm still struggling, and the fact that I'm not drinking is great. I know it would be 10 times worse if I was was still drinking, but, you know, I still have to work at it. <laughs> Recovery is just a journey that everyone has to go through, and sometimes it might take your whole life, and that's fine. You know, my therapist always tells me maybe the purpose of life is to just live, and I think that's great advice for anyone like me to hear. It takes a lot of pressure off, for sure. I'm really excited for you guys to hear today's interview. Uh, My guest's name is Winnie. She has schizophrenia. She's had it since she was four, and she's learned to live with it over the years. She is in a polyamorous relationship, and she talks about that and the effect it has on her mental health. Um, And she just has a lot of really great advice for people who might not have access to external resources or who have limited treatment options. Um, And she's just a really great person, and I think you guys are going to love her. I hope you have a great Monday. I hope your summer is going well. As always, if you want to say hi or be on the show or um, you have a topic you want me to explore in a future episode, you can always email the podcast at picklesandvodkapodcast at gmail.com. 
All right. With that said, here is Winnie. Hey. Hey, how's it going? It goes well today. How's it go with you? Pretty good. I got my coffee and I got my cat all up in my business. So I also have my coffee and uh, the cats are out on the porch so that they don't get all up in my business. <laughs> my cats love it. They have a it's a catio. We're very oh. bougie. Don't we? what, what is that? <laughs> is that is there anything special about it? It's a cat proof patio with like things they can climb on that Darling has built mostly. Oh my God. That sounds amazing. The height of luxury. Yes, very much. (laughs) Well, so I know we've been friends on Peach for a while, but I don't know a ton about you. Um, Do you want to just give a brief introduction? Well, I don't know how long you've known me on Peach, but obviously some of your listeners don't know me at all. I'm Magpirate, or uh, I guess I can use my first name, Winnie. And this is a mental health podcast, so I will come up and say that I am 30-ish years old, (laughs) and uh, I'm a schizophrenic. That was early onset. I was about four when that popped up. We had no idea until I had a really bad psychotic break in uh, my early 20s, though. Oh, can't wait to hear about that. Yeah, in retrospect, in retrospect, I was about four, but (laughs) we just didn't know about it. Right. I live in Florida. So that's that's fun. It's not nearly as much fun as people people imagine it to be. Um, I'm an alcoholic. I'm very open about that. I'm not a recovering alcoholic. I'm I'm just an alcoholic. And um, I guess those are the those are the salient points. I live I live in a weird situation. I live in a largish house in a very bad neighborhood that used to be a decent neighborhood. And uh, I'm polyam polyamorous. Do you want to talk and, about that on the show at all? Yeah, that's fine. If like if it comes up, I, I don't know if it's relevant to your podcast. I don't know if if oh, your I listeners mean, are about that. I think everything about you is relevant. Like you can talk about whatever you want. And I mean, I don't know much about that lifestyle, so I'd be curious to hear about it. Well, cool. That's totally up for discussion. Then it uh, it tends to come up a lot because just I've been effectively married to two of my partners, one for ten years and one for almost six now. So like. They're a big part of, of my daily life. <laughs> and um, they're pretty involved in your mental health as well, yeah? Very, very much involved in my mental health for a lot of reasons. We're, I'm, hilariously enough, the sane and stable one in this, uh, in this household. So, like, <laughs> nice. I'm just the one that's been to the most therapy. That's really what it is. <laughs> okay. Well, you get a prize for that. I'll, I'll give it to you at the end. There we go. <laughs> I'll have a pigeon fly it over. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so tell me about your childhood. My childhood. My childhood was not idyllic, but it was actually, it was a pretty good childhood, all things considered. Um, my dad was in the Navy when I was very little, but then uh, he got um, a brain tumor. The Navy never admitted that they gave to him, but he was working with like secret nuclear experiment stuff. And then he got sick with a brain tumor and suddenly got discharged so that oh they God. wouldn't have to take as much care of him and that went really badly and this was like the early 90s so surgery was not what it is today right and so he wound up going completely off the deep end and uh, he left when I was a little kid and that was a really good thing because like I said the brain tumor we have since reconnected as I'm an adult and he's you know 
much more stable now because they've managed to get surgery has gotten better and they've gotten more of the tumor out. But for my childhood, he was a terrifying presence that was like a stalker and a kidnapper. So that was great. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Lot to unpack there. It was very fucked. But on the other side of the family, on my mom's side of the family, I had everything really great. We lived 20 minutes away from my grandparents. My mom worked for my grandfather's small business. And that side of the family, my grandparent, my maternal grandparents and my mom, we were all really, really close. And my sister and I were both homeschooled in part because of the whole dad stalking issue. Um, And in part because mom knew there was something funky about me, but she thought that I was just, everybody said that I was gifted. That's what they thought it was. My dad was a Mensa member. I joined Mensa in college. So that was, that was what everybody thought it was. That was not what it was. (laughs) Okay. Remind me, remind me what that is because uh, I was also homeschooled and I don't, (laughs) yeah, I, I don't know a lot of these terms. I'm not trying to brag, but Mensa is um, it's a high IQ society for the top two point two percentile or top two percentile. I've forgotten. Okay. I, I joined it in college. It was dumb. It was not dumb. It was very smart, very pretentious people who were working dead end jobs and very proud of how good they were at crosswords, basically. So <laughs> my local chapter sucked and I left. <laughs> so your dad was part of it and then you were part of it. Yes. Okay. Cool. Basically, I wound up really brilliant, but also really, really crazy. Usually, <laughs> how it goes. Yeah. So when I was a kid, everybody thought that I was just really brilliant, and I had some court-mandated counseling as part of the divorce. And the counselor was like, "Yeah, she's gifted," and my mom was like, "Yeah, she's gifted." And you know, my dad had always been a little weird because he's also very brilliant and just weird. He's, aside from the brain tumor, perfectly sane. He's just kooky, okay. absent-minded professor type. And then my sister, the other reason we were homeschooled is because when my sister was two years old, she decided that she wanted to be a ballerina for the she rest of her life. older or younger than you? Younger. Okay. She's younger than me by blah, 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 years. Okay. She's in her early, mid-20s now, okay. so that gives your listeners an idea. And uh, she saw the Nutcracker when she was two years old. And decided that was what she wanted to do with her life. And when she was five years old and still spent hours every day pretending to be a ballerina and going to her creative movement classes once a week and practicing for hours every day as a five-year-old, mom was like, okay, we're going to (laughs) get you into real ballet school. So we found a little tiny ballet school that was run by some Soviet defectors and ballet six days a week four hours a day when she was five years old that's insane (laughs) how did you feel about that I enjoyed it at first I also started up with ballet lessons and it was fun but I was I did not love it and I was not dedicated to it like she was so I dropped out within a few years did you start for her like because she was doing it or is something you were always interested in as well I was never interested in it, but it was something to do. And okay. I was an eternally bored kid. My mom tried really hard, but I was, I mean, I was schizophrenic and we didn't know this. We just thought I had a very active imagination and didn't sleep much. Constantly looking for something to do. So ballet class was something to do. Um, This might I be skipping thought- forward a little bit, but can you describe the symptoms of schizophrenia in a child? Just, you know, so we get a little bit of a, an image The thing about me is that I have what's considered atypical schizophrenia because usually one of the uh, one of the hallmarks of schizophrenia is disordered thinking 
and or delusions. And I don't really suffer from, I'm sorry, disorganized thinking, not disordered thinking. I don't really suffer from either of those. I will occasionally suffer from them very, very mildly, but it's rare. And it's only when things are really bad. Mostly I hallucinate and I have hallucinated since I was four years old. What does that look like for you? All kinds of things, depending on where my mood state is. It can be, um, most of them are visual and it can be just like, shifting pretty patterns on the walls like um sort of a a colored light show sort of a thing anything that has a pattern or a texture I see it like changing colors like those old um, windows media player visualizations oh yeah (laughs) um and then sometimes it'll be things like I don't I don't hear voices telling me to do things but I will occasionally hallucinate like I will hallucinate someone in the grocery store who tells me don't forget you needed to pick up melons And I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks. And this person looks totally normal to me because they knew I needed to pick up melons. They're not a real person. And if I turn back around, they're not still there. Okay, so would you like, did you really need to pick up melons? And is that why you kind of imagine that? Okay. Usually it's something I have forgotten or something that's been pushed to the back burner. So it's it's kind of useful in some ways. Sometimes it'll be completely that has no bearing on reality. Like, remember... The roofs leave at 5 p.m. And I'm like, okay, then. Thanks Didn't for this need to know that. Okay, so going back a little, your sister was five and in ballet, and you were whatever older than her. And also in ballet. Okay. And she stayed with that. We stayed with that through my whole childhood and most of hers. I stayed near it because, I mean, when you're homeschooled and as she got older, the time that she spent it at ballet class, it got up to where it was nine hours on weekdays and she would do her schoolwork there between classes while she was resting. And like all the serious kids did it that way. They were all homeschooled and doing their like math and English and stuff while they were stretching and shit. I'm not even kidding. Was it a homeschool group? Nope. It was just coincidence. And it was just because so much time needed to be devoted to the training that there was really no way to do it if you weren't homeschooling your kids. Gotcha. Wow, that's really dedicated. Nine hours a day when you're 13. Very normal. It was great in a lot of ways. Um, But then my sister got injured. And uh, unfortunately, that that pretty much trashed her dreams of becoming a ballerina because her injury made it. She tore a tendon in the back of her knee. And uh, it took a couple years to recover. And she had lost so much ground that she never could get it back into shape to where she needed to be to go professional and uh, even to this day she has trouble dancing on it oh man and it was really sad it was really very tragic did you drop out of ballet then as well I had dropped out a few years previous but I was by the when she had her injury I I was young and I was actually working for the ballet company as a costumer at that time Oh, cool because my whole world still pretty much revolved around that ballet school And I hadn't figured out what I wanted to do with my life yet. I was contemplating whether I wanted to go to college or not, where I wanted to go, et cetera. The Navy was trying to recruit me, and I'm like, no, screw you. Not enough of that. (laughs) And then I I fell away from it um, when she, after she got injured, because it was just, she couldn't be anywhere near it. She was just too crushed, you know? Yeah, I don't blame her. So our, our whole life then moved away from that. And then I went to college and I moved out on my own, and it was wonderful. And then I had a horrible nervous breakdown. So how did that all play out for you? I was kind of driven when I was younger. I'm not now. But I went to school for music. My whole family is artists, and I had always been very musical. And uh, I went to school for opera, actually, hilariously enough. Do you sing? Yeah, I do. 
Oh, cool. Yeah, I do. I went to school for opera, and uh, I have a somewhat unusual voice type. So it was like, well, your prospects are kind of good. This voice type's kind of rare, so you don't have to be quite as good to, you know, make it. And I'm like, that's encouraging. Thank you. <laughs> and I did some studying abroad um, in Bavaria and Austria. It was very, very high pressure because, and I was used to that because ballet is an extremely high pressure world. Right. I mean, it's a 16 hour days kind of world, you know? So opera is exactly the same. It is long ass work days and very little off time and very high stress and high competition. So I felt like this was very natural for me. But what I didn't realize is that I had been slowly sliding into the abyss for about six years at this point. And I was just finishing up my degree and I was double majoring in computer science and in opera. When I picked up the double major, I should have known something was wrong because if I loved opera as much as I said I did, I wouldn't have picked up the double major. But in reality, I didn't love opera as much as I thought I did. And I did love computer science which is also a very high-pressure field. Yeah, it is. So basically, six months before I graduated, I had a job lined up in Germany with an apprenticeship at an, a small opera company, and I had a complete nervous breakdown. I uh, My hallucinations got really bad, and what I thought was always just, oh, I'm imaginative, it became obvious that this was actually, honest to God, hallucinations. Okay. My whole world went uh, went sort of Silent Hill on me. I wound up losing about 70 pounds over the course of a year because I couldn't eat because a lot of my hallucinations and stress had focused around food because I've also had food issues for a lot of my life. And uh, yeah, then I wound up I wound up having a complete psychotic break and attacking my girlfriend and wound up good and hospitalized for that. And it was it was awful. I was one semester away from graduating, and uh, because of the way that I got hospitalized and paperwork didn't take get taken care of, instead of being able to just withdraw from all my classes that semester, I wound up failing all of them Aww. and getting expelled because my GPA dropped so low. So I never did finish my degree, either okay. of them. It took me almost two years to get my brain back into a place where I could even contemplate going back to school, and by that point... Everything had caught fire. <laughs> so were your symptoms gradually worsening over the years? You said you were spiraling. They were, but I didn't realize it. Um, so another thing about my particular type of schizophrenia is that I have schizoaffective type of schizophrenia, which is like a mood disorder combined with schizophrenia. And when I was younger, my mom thought that I might be bipolar because that runs in the family. Okay. But it wasn't ever really bad that she saw. She didn't realize how bad the depression was. But I never went full mania, which she had seen her father do. So she she was very hesitant to get me into treatment, etc. Because the place where we live, the mental health treatment that's available is alarmingly bad, mm. like nightmarish. So I should have been treated when I was when I was younger. I, I slid further and further into depression, and then I would have higher and higher periods of mania. And the hallucinations were steadily getting stronger. But it was happening so slowly from the time that I was 15 to the time that I was 21 mm -hmm. that it just, I didn't notice it until I was looking back at it, you know? Right. So I, I'm also not too familiar with bipolar. I, I want to do a whole episode on that later. But um, can you describe the difference between bipolar and schizophrenia? Absolutely. So with bipolar disorder, obviously you have the cycling, the cycling mood thing where you have periods that are usually not, I mean, in the popular consciousness, we think of it as like one minute, somebody's super happy. And then five minutes later, they're crying in the bathroom. That's right. not how this works. 
it's like months long periods and the transitions are usually a few weeks in between, you know, Okay. where your mania, you're super high energy, you're very reckless. Everything is this is your up period. You're not just super happy. You also get ragey. You're kind of you're kind of like roid ragey the whole time. You have loads of energy. You're very pumped about everything. And when you get angry, it's really bad. Okay. And then, of course, you cycle down into depression and we all know what a terrible black pit that is. Yes. And this is schizophrenia. This is bipolar. Okay. But this is also schizoaffective schizophrenia. Now, I don't get full-blown mania. I get what's called hypomania, which is like miniature mania. I don't go, let's blow all our money and go to Vegas for like three weeks. We're just going to be professional gamblers now, which is something my grandfather actually did in one of his manic episodes. He (laughs) learned to count cards and flew to Vegas and just didn't show up for work because mania made him think that was a good idea. (laughs) So you don't do that. I don't do that. I basically just go clubbing a lot. But. The major difference and the thing that made it able to um, be differentiated is, do you hallucinate? In bipolar one with severe mania, you can hallucinate. Um, Usually this is because you haven't slept for four days and you're getting that kind of hallucination. In schizophrenia, you are having other schizophrenic symptoms. You are having disorganized thoughts, you're having delusions, or you're having hallucinations that don't coincide with severe manic or depressive episodes. They appear to be separate from the mood disorder problem. Okay, they just happen on their own. Right. Okay. And with me, because I hallucinate all the goddamn time. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll try to keep the language clean. Oh, I don't care. I don't think my listeners expect this to be a curse-free show. Okay, good. But with me, because I hallucinate all the time and it's not correlated with episodes of mania or hypomania, and I don't really get manic enough to hallucinate anyways, I get I do get insomnia, but not as severe as you do with full ma- full-blown mania, which is literally like not sleeping for four or five days until your body physically collapses. That's what really made it able to be differentiated as, okay, this is schizophrenia. But again, mine is atypical. I don't show the, the kinds of distorted thinking or delusions that usually present with schizophrenia. I, I don't worry that people can read my thoughts or anything like that. I don't feel like anybody's out to get me or anything that is um, like blatantly impossible. I do have social anxiety, but that's like a separate but comorbid disorder. <laughs> but it really things when I was trying to get a diagnosis. <laughs> um, I have a few questions about that. Is it the kind of illness that gets worse as you get older? It can. What kind of treatment is there for it also? It tends to, well, they put you on antipsychotics. Okay. And um, it tends to worsen as you go without treatment. Schizophrenia does get worse the longer you go without treatment because um, turns out hallucinating all the time actually sort of damages your brain a little bit. No. It damages your ability to tell white noise signals from like actual reality and so you sort of hallucinate more as time goes by and the disordered thinking and whatnot that more worsens because your life circumstances tend to worsen but if you can keep that stable then then it's not really a disease that progresses really severely and I'm I'm a I'm an example of like how not to manage your schizophrenia (laughs) I I don't manage mine super duper well but it I manage it the best that I can because by the time we caught it, a lot of damage had already been done because like I said, my I since I was four. You right. Know? So going lo- back, um, you attacked your girlfriend, you ended up in the hospital, and then you got your diagnosis, I'm assuming? Yep, I got my diagnosis. They originally misdiagnosed me as a bipolar one and thought that I was having a manic episode. And then I spent 
like eight months in hospital. And uh, during that time, they eventually figured out that I was schizophrenic. And it was a horrible experience overall. Um, but I did get my diagnosis. And when I finally got out, I was able to find a much better doctor. And I went doctor shopping. And um, a couple years later, I got on clozapine, which is an antipsychotic. Okay. I, I was on a couple of them before that, but clozapine worked the best. And we got the shit under control and got me somewhat stable. And with most schizophrenics, see, the thing is that you can't stay on antipsychotics forever. You just, you can't because you get muscle twitches and, and those things worsen the longer you're on the antipsychotics and they're permanent. So what, what do they do exactly? They make you not hallucinate and they fix some of the disordered thinking, some of the like delusions and paranoia, which I didn't have. I just had the hallucinations. And sometimes it's hard to find one that'll actually work for you. Clozapine worked for me. I didn't, I don't hallucinate when I'm on it, but I'm not on it most of the time because I developed muscle twitches, like pretty bad ones. Okay. And I talked to the doctor and the doctor was like, well, that happens. And so usually what they do is you, they get you on it, they get you to where you're not hallucinating anymore. And then they take you, they wean you off of it or take you back to the lowest possible dose where you're mostly not hallucinating. And then it's this terrible balancing act between we don't want to hallucinate and cause brain damage, but we also don't want to stay on the antipsychotics and cause brain damage. That sounds exhausting. <laughs> yes. With me, um, we eventually decided that it was the best thing for me because I managed my hallucinations pretty damn well once I was out of that very high-stress environment, which severely worsened my schizophrenia. Um, once I was out of the opera and the computer science, once I was able to be a stay-at-home homemaker and live a, a less stressful life, the hallucinations aren't so bad. The muscle twitches, however, I, I wasn't willing to deal with that worsening. I have a um, my hand does a thing where it will just clench itself and unclench itself completely has nothing to do with my say so. And I um, also have a facial tick at the mm. corner of my eye that acts up sometimes. And I didn't want to see that get worse because that was from like two years on clozapine. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't want to see what that was going to be when I was 50. So yeah. I was like, Oh, let's, let's get off the drugs for now. And if it worsens, I can always get back on them, you know? Yeah. So was your diagnosis a relief for you when you found out? Hugely a relief to find out exactly what the fuck was wrong with me. <laughs> I mean, at that point, it was very clear that this isn't just, oh, people don't understand her. She's gifted. No, this was something is very seriously miswired here, people. <laughs> right. So when you got out, um, you said you became a homemaker. Were you with your girlfriend that you had attacked? Like, was she still yeah. around? Yes, she was. That is the same girlfriend. That is Darling, who okay. I talked about. On yeah, talk a little bit um, about that. She is the love of my life, and she is wonderful. We got together when I was very young, um, and we have a, a very big age gap. We're almost 30 years. She's almost 30 years older than me. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that was hilarious. She's a year older than my mother, which made things a little awkward. How did you guys meet? <laughs> Through church. My grandmother was a pastor. <laughs> oh, my God. I love this even more now. My grandmother was a pastor and darling, um, she went to that church and my grandmother, as she got old and uh, infirm, she needed handyman help around the house and darling came around and did stuff at the house. And I was living with my grandmother because my grandmother, because my mother and I, I couldn't stand to live with my mother anymore. My mother and I, our personalities, we can't live together. No. Okay. And uh, this was when I was a late teenager and um, I knew Darling from church sort of vaguely. And then she spent a lot of time over the course of a couple of years at my grandmother's house doing things like cleaning gutters or 
washing off the driveway, mowing the lawn, that kind of a thing. And my grandmother paid her for all this odd job work, but she just would rather pay somebody from church to do it than some rando, you know? And like I said, I was living with my grandmother and taking care of her. She had congestive heart failure. She needed somebody to be there all the time. And I really, really liked Darling. And I had, I developed a huge crush on her. Of course, I thought there was no way that this was ever going to work because she was like the same age as my mom. She clearly wasn't even interested in me. And then one time I just decided, fuck it, I'm going to go for it. And I went for it. And she was horrified at first, but (gasps) also like, you know, kind of interested. And it's worth noting that though I was very young, I didn't look like, oh, barely legal jail bait teen. I I was very young, but I didn't look especially young and... I had had such weird socialization by this point that I really didn't talk or act like most teenagers, despite the fact that I was only 19. Well, I was I was just about to turn 19 when we got together. Most of my friends were closer to 30 at this I, point. I can actually relate to that a lot. I, I've always gotten yeah. along better with older people. Exactly. And most of Darling's friends were younger than her. They tended to run about 35 okay. or so. So our friend group, hilariously enough, actually overlapped. We had a lot of friends in common. And so it was it was less weird than you would think. But uh, it took some pursuing to get her to stop freaking the fuck out about, oh, my God, my pastor's granddaughter, who is 30 years younger than me, is very much trying to come on to me right now. (laughs) Holy balls. I'm I'm curious. were, Were either I mean, she was involved in the church, obviously. What role did that have in your relationship? I wasn't heavily involved in the church. By this point, I was the choir director, but I wasn't religious. I was really just doing it because my grandmother wanted me to, and I hadn't gotten into college yet. Um, Darling actually really, really encouraged me to go to college and, and all that stuff. She was she was wonderful. She still is wonderful. But the church didn't play a huge role in our life, except that, um, unfortunately, once we got together, even though my grandmother was supportive of the relationship, a lot of people at the church were very much not because a lot of them had known me since I was a small child. And even though I was now 19, they still saw me as being nine. And to them, Darling was just very clearly a creepy pedophile and needed to be run out of town. And anyone who it was hilarious because anyone who knew me, who had spent who spent any time around me outside of church services it was very, very obvious just by our personalities that I was clearly the pursuer and the aggressor here. She's very shy and reserved and easily flustered, et cetera. And I've always been very brash and straightforward and et cetera, et cetera. But people who didn't know me well, who just forever saw me as Shirley Temple, basically, they refused to believe that. And uh, some nasty rumors got circulating. And my grandmother actually kicked a few people out of the church for being ugly about oh, it. Oh, good for her. Even so, darling, the social pressure was such that we wound up stopping going to church. It was it was unfortunate and sad. She, she stayed spiritual, but we don't we didn't go to church anymore. And then my grandmother passed and the church kind of dissolved. So uh, that is kind of sad how it all played out. Yeah, it was. So you guys stayed together through college, your college experience. And then after you got out of the hospital, you moved in with her? I had been living with her before that. Um, My grandmother, my sister couldn't take my mother anymore after her injury with the ballet. My sister moved in with my grandmother. At that point, I moved out. And because basically at that point, I was free. I didn't have to stay with my grandmother anymore. And Darling and I had been together for about a year and a half. 
and I really did want to move out on my own, and I was just into college. And her house, Darling's house, was much closer to the school that I was going to than my grandmother's house was. It was it went from an hour commute to a 20-minute commute, you know? Yeah. So I moved in with Darling at that point, and I was living with her all through college, and she was very supportive all through that. And then she saw my mental health worsening, and she knew something need- needed to be done, but she couldn't figure out how to bring it up without being, like, terrible about it. Yeah. She was worried, but she never really said anything. She was just like, babe, I'm worried about you. And I just kept saying, you know, it's going to be fine. As soon as I graduate, it's going to be fine. going to go to Germany. The stress is going to be less. It's just stress. I'm just tired. Everything's fine. Everything was not fine. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and like I said, I attacked her. She wasn't badly hurt. It wasn't an especially effective attack, but that is what happened. The reason that I attacked her was because, and see, my life gets more interesting. I have some uh, childhood onset PTSD from an interesting event that happened to me and my best friend when I was nine. Anyways, I was having a really bad psychotic break and I thought I mistook my girlfriend for my attacker. Yeah, it was it was bad. She tried to like be romantic and I just lost my entire goddamn mind because suddenly I was nine years old in the closet again. That's anyway, terrifying for both of you. It was. It was horrendous. Like I said, she stayed with me. She stayed with me through that whole eight-month hospitalization. And when I got out, it was like, okay, well, I guess you probably don't want me around anymore. And she was like, what the fuck are you even talking about? Come home. I miss you. She was very supportive through me recovering from the hospitalization and from all the the bullshit that was associated with that. Um, All the doctor shopping and whatnot. Yes. Like I said, the mental health around here is shit. And the hospital that I was incarcerated in was the county hospital and to say nightmarish is uh very much putting it mildly i actually i have hilariously i have ptsd from that hospital stay that i'm still working on it's like like i'm all about people need to go and get help etc and like if inpatient is what's right for you then go and do that but at the same time (laughs) you gotta be careful i i hate that it's so difficult to get help in this country and yeah you know, it's easy to just tell someone to get help, but actually doing it, like you said, can end up being more harmful than good. Especially because in some cases, even if you check yourself in voluntarily, which I did, I wasn't involuntarily committed at first. There was no police report filed for the attack or anything. It was just once I calmed down, she was like, babe, you have to go. We have to get you help. And I agreed because, you know, holy shit, I had attacked her. Yeah. And I was still in the middle of having like I was things were still really bad. But even though I checked myself in voluntarily, I wound up losing the right to leave they would not let me go and I couldn't change doctors and I couldn't, I mean, the laws in Florida are such that you can just very easily lose all control over your life and your treatment and it's goddamn terrifying and it should not be that. People should not be afraid to get help. Exactly. Like, I don't know that I ever could do inpatient again because my experience was so bad. Even if I really needed to be inpatient somewhere, I don't think I could do it. That should not be the case. Yeah, absolutely. I wound up where I wound up because we didn't know any better and I didn't have any insurance that would cover mental health anything. So I wound up in a public county hospital, basically. And it was bad. It was very bad. That's, you know, the only option for some people. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that nightmarish. It should not be a traumatic experience to go to the freaking hospital. What's your experience been like since then with your mental illness? Over the years, um, I'm doing a lot better now because, like I said, the stress was the main thing that 
just made it completely untenable. Right. And when I get more stressed, my mental health tends to take a nosedive, which, you know, obviously. My experience, though, has been that once I got stable and once I learned what the fuck was happening to me and some things that would, like, trigger it to get worse and some things that would make it easier to get through, I already had a lot of really good coping mechanisms um, that I had just developed by sheer practice. Like what? Well, like a lot of things that are cognitive behavioral therapy, I had already sort of learned to do on my own. A lot of like, don't think that way. That's objectively not true. Everyone does not hate you. You just made a mistake and you feel bad about it right now. The world is not ending. Yeah, I'm a huge you know? fan of CBT. It's been mentioned in like the last two episodes, I think. <laughs> it's wonderful. So once I learned that there was a name for that and there were workbooks for that and I could learn to do more of that, that has been great at helping the schizophrenia because when the hallucinations try to, it's like being on an acid trip all the time. And one of the things that I do that you're not supposed to do is um, I'm a big fan of psychedelics, which not great for schizophrenia, great mood regulation. So in my mood stabilizers, they really don't. We haven't found something that like, works for more than a few weeks which is unfortunate yeah the clozapine worked for the antipsychotics but mood stabilizers i've been on all of them i'm currently on lithium and it isn't doing shit and i'm weaning off of it so you're you're an alcoholic how (laughs) does that interfere with the schizophrenia the alcoholism doesn't seem to affect it i started drinking as soon basically as soon as i moved out see the problem is that darling is also an alcoholic okay and she's semi-recovered she's had periods of relapse And basically, I moved in with her, and I always, I knew by that point that I could drink because I had done some experimental drinking in high school. (laughs) Not great, but we all did it. Um, I moved in with Darling, and um, I went manic. We didn't know what it was, but I went manic. I started clubbing a lot with friends. I went to a few frat parties. I started drinking. And the thing is that alcohol, for me, I don't have... A lot of really bad effects from it. I'm, I'm also chronically ill. I have I have several things going on, and it helps uh, it helps me feel be in less pain from my joints, and it generally makes me happy and relaxed. And I don't really get depressed or moody, and I don't really suffer terrible hangovers emotionally. Okay. Um, Darling does. She gets she gets the depression the day after, so that's a good motivator for her to like stay sober. Right. I didn't have that, and so it was like. I was drinking occasionally and then I was drinking when I was stressed and I needed I just needed to calm the fuck down and finish this paper or I just need to calm the fuck down and finish this assignment. I just needed to relax. I just yeah. needed to let go. And oh, we're going to a party this weekend. And before I knew it, I was an alcoholic. It so, really crept up on me. So does the schizophrenia prevent you from relaxing on your own? It's the mood disorder part of it and okay. the fact that I also have anxiety. Between those two things, I do have a hard time relaxing on my own and I like weed, but weed is incapacitating for me. When I get high, I am useless. When I get stoned, I mean, I am useless. Darling, she self-medicates for ADHD and depression with weed, basically. Oh, so Um, you guys are kind of like opposites in that way. We are. It chills her out and makes her able to focus. And so she's just kind of low-key stoned all the time and that's fine. And that's so much better than being drunk because she gets depressed and moody and all that kind of shit. Tries not to drink. Meanwhile, I sort of self-medicate with alcohol because it severely, it very much improves my mood. And it lets me, like I said, be in less pain. But 
at this point, I've been a full-blown alcoholic for about a decade, and with periods of, like, tapering back to a reasonable level, I've never done the whole sobriety thing, but I do, I do taper occasionally, because when I see that it's, when it gets to the point where I'm, like, not getting benefits from it anymore, I'm just avoiding withdrawals. Exactly, yeah. It's like, okay, we need to rein this shit in. (laughs) Basically, my whole life has been a series of managing my own mental health pretty much on my own without a lot of professional help, like managing the alcoholism without going to groups or managing the schizophrenia without being on the antipsychotics. So you've probably been through a lot of trial and error. Do you have any tips for people who don't have access to external resources and they have to deal with it on their own? Yeah, I do. Um, My main tip would be try really, really hard to cultivate the ability to look at yourself and your situation as objectively as possible, to look at yourself and say, okay, I am doing very poorly right now and I need to fix this. What can I do? And that can be just completely overwhelming. Like for me, it was always about managing my mood state. It was always about, okay, I am not feeling good when I'm drinking anymore. I'm just avoiding withdrawals. That means that I need to taper back so that I can get to a point where I feel good again when I drink. Right. And that sounds fucked up, but that's managing it. Okay, I'm having really bad, like, calorie counting. I'm losing weight, but I am going really insane over it. I need to stop counting calories for a while and try to manage my weight by other other means because all this calorie counting is driving me to a place where I'm constantly anxious and I'm binging more because I'm upset and etc. Right. I need to stop doing that. And usually the solutions are really simple like that. Like, oh shit, I'm having a really bad time with my hallucinations lately. Maybe we'll stop listening to creepy music. Maybe we'll stop listening to Welcome to Night Vale for a couple of weeks <laughs> until we like, get this shit under control. Well, you, know? you say it's really simple, but that actually takes a lot of willpower, I think. And also a lot of, like, knowing yourself. And that's, I think, really the key. And if if you have very few resources, spend them on a therapist who will teach you to learn yourself. I had to do it trial by fire method my whole life or I wouldn't have survived to this point. But going to, um, I went to couples therapy with Darling right after the whole psychotic break thing. Because things were rocky after that. Yeah. And that was fantastic. Learning better strategies to communicate with her also taught me to communicate with myself better. That's awesome. To be able to talk to myself and be like, okay, what do you need right now? What can we do to make us, me, feel better? You know? Yeah. Permission to, like, do those things. Permission to, okay, you know what? It is more important that I am less crazy than that I am, than that I fit into these jeans. So... We're going to we're going to take a break on the weight management and we're going to do it for three months. And usually when it's hard to do it like that, like you have anxiety about the weight, but you're also going crazy over the calorie counting. What helped me is for the welcome night veal thing. Okay, I'm going to take one month and I would mark it in the calendar and I'm not and I will reevaluate then. Or sometimes it's even as little as a week if it's something that you really can't break off from. Like I'm going to taper for a week and I'm going to see how I feel then. I like that idea of setting, you know, those small goals for yourself, because that's sometimes that's all people can manage. And I, I we've talked about harm reduction on this podcast before, but I'm a huge advocate for that. Yeah, same. And so much of it, I think that the and we'll reevaluate at the end of this period is really key to making it stick because you can't always expect that things are going to be fixed after whatever period. And if you do, you get stuck in this weird loop where it's like, okay, well, I know that 
tapering for a week isn't going to do it. So I guess I better set the goal for a month because that'll fix it. But my God, that's exhausting. I can't do that. I'll start tomorrow. And then you say the same thing the next day. But if you just say, I'm going to taper for a week and then I'll reevaluate. If I feel like I don't want to do this anymore, I don't have to after a week. That makes it so much easier to actually stick to the week. I'm, I'm really glad that you found kind of a system that works for you. And I think it, it does come with age too, you know, knowing yourself better and you're learning through trial and error. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to live through some shit and that sucks, but we all go through it. Yeah. I see that a lot of us were very much harm reduction and we're very um, sort of settled into our crazy, crazy ways. Yeah. And I've noticed that all of us are like in our thirties, we've lived here for a while. And the ones that are really struggling with it, that are like, Oh my God, I, I can't, figure out how to do this. I need to recover. I'm having such a bad time. Those are mostly the younger, the younger members. And I just, I, I always want to be like the big sister and be like, honey, it'll be okay. So much of it is just experience. You've yeah. just got to do the suck until you figure out how to deal with it. It's not going to get magically better, but I promise you, you will figure out how to deal with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm only 26, but I, I've been dealing with this for like 18 years now. And I, you know, I'm just starting to learn more about myself and, you know, find ways to live with this, but also be semi happy. Yeah. And that's another thing that I would say as a tip for people like this. I don't mean to sound depressing, but being realistic yeah. is huge for me. I will never be normal. I will never be sane. And if I measure happy based on I want to be perfect. I want to be sane and normal. Like that's, that's completely unattainable for mm -hmm. me. Even a lot of times like happy is unattainable. I'm always going to have cycling moods. I'm always going to deal with depression sometimes. Yeah. I honestly hate that word happy. I know I just used it, but it's, it's, Wait, yeah. it's yeah, such a fake unattainable ideal. There are periods of happiness but you can't just be happy for the rest of your life. Yeah. No one lives like that, especially those of us who are struggling with mental health. That is not the goal. The goal is to have more days that you don't want to die than days that you do. That's, that's it. That's yes. the whole thing for me. Yeah, my that's therapist just told me the other day, I was, I was, you know, bitching to him about how I can't see the meaning of life sometimes. And he was like, maybe the meaning of life is just to live, you know, like, you, <laughs> that's it. You don't have to do anything, but just live. Yes, I like that. Oh, that's good. Maybe the yeah. meaning of just to live. I know, I wrote oh, it I down. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm gonna write that down somewhere. <laughs> I'm going to cross stitch it. <laughs> yes, for real. But um, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Or I know we didn't really touch on the whole polyamory thing. Did you want to talk about that for a little bit? That for me is kind of, I don't want to say that it's orientation. It is, it's orientational. I'm just, I'm not made for monogamy. There's something in my brain that just doesn't do that. And that's unrelated. <laughs> that's unrelated to your mental health, right? Or is it? It's sort of related because having, well, okay, I am a lot to deal with because of the state of my mental health, right? Mm -hmm. It is hard to be with somebody like me because there are just, there are a lot of bad days. And even on good days, there's a lot of bullshit sometimes. And so for Darling, 
when Sweetheart came onto the scene and she had somebody to sort of tag out with when she couldn't be there for me. And that was better for both of us because A, she wasn't getting burnt out trying to be my rock all the time. Right. And B, I didn't have to feel like I needed to rein it in all the goddamn time and not dump on her. And, you know, like there was less walking on eggshells because she could say, babe, I love you, but I can't deal with whatever's going on with you right now. Go talk to go talk to sweetheart. And so they can sort of tag out on which one has more spoons to deal with whatever's happening with me. And they're both also supremely fucked up. Both of them are learning to deal with their own mood swings and bullshit. Which is interesting because you said you're so much younger than Darling, at least. I don't know about Sweetheart. I'm younger than Sweetheart by several years, about eight years, I think. I think he's eight years older than me. But he comes from a background where mental health is not a thing and men don't have emotions. That's sadly, you know, a common occurrence. He's he's Italian from Chicago, from an immigrant family where, sure, we have lots of emotions, but not those emotions. Right. (laughs) (laughs) how has your mental health opened his eyes if any well part of it is that i use a lot of the strategies just all all the time like when we would get into a fight i would start applying the couples counseling and honestly the the cognitive behavioral therapy to whatever we were fighting about like we're not communicating clearly right now i'm too angry to talk to you i need a break And then me taking a break would give him a chance to calm down as well. And then I could be like, okay, well, you're saying blah, blah, blah. I think you mean blah, blah, blah. Does that sound more accurate to you? And he could be like, yes or no. And and that sort of taught him to communicate a lot better. Yeah, it starts a conversation. Yes. And then that, in our relationship, helped him learn to talk about what was going on in his own head. Because when we got together, he has some very severe PTSD. And when we got together, sometimes he would start having a really bad time. And I'd be like, what's wrong? And he'd say, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. I'm fine, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, I could be like, you are clearly not fine. From where I am standing, you do not look fine to me. Is it X, Y, Z? Are you wor- you're checking the windows. Have you seen something or are you worried you're going to see something? And at first he would just say, it's nothing, I'm fine. But after I taught him to communicate better when we were fighting, et cetera, he got to a point where he could say, I haven't seen anything yet, but I know there's something out there. And then I could say, okay, do you know there's something out there or do you feel like there's something out there? And he got really annoyed with that a few times because it is a little bit patronizing. But eventually it got to a point where he would say, I feel like there's something out there. And now he can recognize I'm feeling anxious. And then he can deal with it in ways that aren't pacing around and checking the windows. Um, (laughs) So being in a relationship with two other people who are also struggling with their mental health, do you find it to be empowering or does it ever trigger you? Both. There's actually another person in the relationship at this point, but he's not living with us. Okay. Um, and he also is crazy. <laughs> Wonderful. And um, <laughs> I know some of your listeners may not like that word. I'm I'm one of the uh, reclaimed crazy, mad pride no, people. You but can, I think it's okay if you say it. I, I feel like I kind of get to being as, as supremely fucked as I am. <laughs> <laughs> You've earned it, yeah. So anyways... In some ways, it's very imp- it's very empowering and it's very helpful because we understand what's going on. And and darling, especially she uh, like when I get really bad with the depression, my hygiene tends to take a nosedive 
and that's unfortunate and it's embarrassing and unflattering but like sweetheart is getting there he doesn't suffer from the depression like that but he can see that this is not my normal and darling who does suffer depression like that it's just managed she can be like yeah that's that's a thing she's not just being gross she legitimately doesn't have the energy to get up and and do that it's impossible to make yourself care when you're at the point that she is and so they can support each other a little bit like that and there's a there's a kind of understanding that you don't get with normal people who are like i why can't you just get better? And so they they understand that. And so there's a lot more, I'm not going to say leeway, but there's a lot more understanding of the reality of the struggle. But at the same time, when one of us goes down, we all tend to go down. Yeah. And that makes it so much harder to climb out of the pit. It's usually me that sets the, um, the barometer for how things are going to go. Because if I can keep it together... Either sweetheart or darling can have a low point. And if I can keep it together, the other one is usually okay. And I can sort of, you know, we can wait that out. We can wait out a period of depression with darling. We can wait out a really bad PTSD anxious week with sweetheart. But if I go down, both of them immediately start spiraling because Mm -hmm. they're not as good at managing their own shit. And I do a lot of the emotional regulation in the house. And so without me there to do it, then, like I said, everything tends to go to shit and trying to pull us all three up out of that hole is much harder than just trying to pull one person. That's that's exhausting. How do you how do you (laughs) get out of those periods? Honestly, it's sheer willpower. We haven't found a great solution for it yet. And it's like the situation is not perfect. Darling has lived a lot of her life very depressed and also very alcoholic. And she's gotten very good at making herself go through the motions of living, making herself brush her teeth and go to work, even if she really doesn't feel like it. So she can keep functioning. Sweetheart kind of stops functioning after a while, and he'll miss a lot of work and et cetera. And it mostly tends to come down to one of us, usually me, sometimes darling, just really putting our shoulder down and muscling through to force him to sort of get it together. And then once you put your shoulder down for somebody else, it's easier to do it for you. Like I can't make myself get out of bed, but I can make myself get out of bed long enough to get him out the door for work and then go back to bed. It's like that stupid image of, you know, you have to put your oxygen mask on before you can help someone else. But then once I do that for a week or two, usually it's easier for me to make myself get out of bed for me. It's like having a pet as your reason to get up in the morning. Yes, that's I can totally relate to that. When they start really spiraling, when things get to a point where we can't keep living like this, it's like something clicks in the back of my brain and I'm, I get this second wind of willpower where I am able to, not for my own sake, but for their sake, somehow muscle through it. And I don't know how that works, but it does. Whatever works for you. And I think, you know, that can be a a positive to being in a relationship when you're mentally ill. I know a lot of people feel like they can't deal with it in their state, but I think there are some benefits for sure. Yeah. Like I said, for somebody like me, who's just, there is no, I mean, recovery is not you're perfect, you're cured. There's never going to be perfect and cured. I believe that there's people who if you find the right combination of meds etc you can be you can lead a totally normal sane life that's not going to ever be the case for me i can't imagine trying to be in a relationship with somebody who was more mentally healthy more mentally stable that would be so unfair to them 
Because it's like, when you're all struggling, you understand each other's struggles. And it's like, I feel you. We're all in this sinking ship together. But I would feel like I was dragging somebody down. I think it is important. (laughs) It is important to be able to relate to your partner's mental illness. But I, I also think both of you have to be on the same page in terms of harm reduction or what your goal is because otherwise you're just gonna drag each other down I didn't even think of that but yeah that's a major theme with me and all of my relationships is that we do the harm reduction thing here we do the coping thing here not the cured thing here and uh, for all of us we're all kind of in a point where it's like cured is not even a distant dream that's not a possibility so yeah harm reduction Harm yeah. reduction is great. And recover- recovery, <laughs> quote unquote, looks different for everybody. You know, for some people, yes. recovery might just mean living. And that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. But it is important to be on the same page about what recovery looks like and what your goals are, like Absolutely. you were saying, because otherwise you're going to get frustrated and you're going to get bogged down. <laughs> it's yeah. just not going to be a good time. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any f- last thoughts or advice for the listeners? In everything in my life, I have found that communication is key, whether it is trying to balance three romantic partners where communication is absolutely the most important thing in the entire world, (laughs) or trying to find a good doctor where, again, communication is really, really key. Even when it comes to managing my own mental health, communicating with myself, if you do nothing else to learn to manage your bullshit, go to a sort of couples workshop learn to communicate, learn the floor method, learn what black and white thinking is, learn not to do that. Yes. Learn to yourself and learn to talk to the people around you effectively. That will save your ass. I love that you said <laughs> learn how to communicate with yourself because that's really hard sometimes. It is. But if you're going to keep the ship from completely sinking, you have to learn to do it. You have to. Yep. There's just no other way. I totally agree. Well, Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I had fun too. I really love talking to you. What What are your plans for the rest of the day? My plans for the rest of the day are uh, to do laundry. And then uh, if I can get everything clean in time, we're going to a drag show later. Oh, fun. Yes. <laughs> well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for doing this again. I, I appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me, and I hope you have a good rest of your day, too. And snuggle that cute kitty for me. (laughs) Oh, all the time. It's all I do. (laughs) All right, bye. Bye.